welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. On Top Lines and Tales, we like to talk history, and uh, my guest today, Geordie Souter, is a man who's been rewarded for just that, preserving the past and making a, a damn good job of it, I have to say. Welcome, Geordie, to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Yes, um... And we, we also have on the call uh, his daughter, Louise, and, and Louise the Herd is called Dun Louise, and I think that's a combination name of yourself and, and your, your brother, is that right? Yes, that's right. That um, We always joke and say it's a good thing they didn't have a third kid, otherwise they'd feel very left out. <laughs> yes, it would have been quite a long name with a third one on there as well. Uh-huh. And... Um, so you guys, for, for those that don't know of the Dun Louis Herd and yourself, uh, you breed traditional Angus, and uh, that's native Angus, should I say. And what was it that made you consider that the, the traditional native Angus needed that helping hand that you got started with? Well, I had started my career working with a local auction mart, um, and after several other sort of 40s, when we decided to move from commercial cattle into pedigrees, um, I was not enamored with the cattle. They bore no resemblance to the cattle of my youth. So we bought the first one, I think in Carlisle in 1995. And uh, the more we did it, the more we liked what we were doing and uh, we liked the cattle, we liked it. So it became a mission, a passion, if you like, to gather up all the remaining cow families. It, Bob Anderson, who was Aberdeen Angus Breed Secretary at the time, was very helpful, furnished us with the names of people who had old cows. And they were generally very old cows and mainly in calf to non-native bulls. So, you know, we gathered them up and uh, and now we have nothing on the farm but native cattle. Uh, and we have all the cow families that are left in existence now gathered up. We'll go through those cow families in a second because I think a lot of our Angus breeders on here, which we have a big following of on, will be uh, interested in hearing which those families are. But uh, with regards to these animals, did you realise you were finding a gap in the market here or was it just you just do it for the sake of preservation? Well, it wasn't really preservation. Initially, it wasn't. It was all about we like the calibre of the cattle, the, the size of them, their and a lot of their abilities were very obvious from the outset. So, as I say, it became very much a, a passion to gather them up and just basically see what we could do with them. Okay, okay. And again, for our listeners, you can briefly, and this might not be a brief explanation, but uh, give us an idea what the differences are or, or were between the native Angus and, and what... Well, I see what we consider as an Angus maybe in, in Scotland and what they consider as an Angus in the USA. So just give us a quick praise of, of sort of what the native Angus um, differences are. I suppose the, the main differences would be that they are, they're more like the Angus that you would see in the traditional like oil paintings, you know, the, the deep body, the big vital organ capacity and the, the sort of shorter legs. They, they certainly aren't what, what you know people would call the belt buckle cattle. That's not quite what 
our natives are. But you're basically looking for an animal that is sort of more durable in all conditions because that's what they originally made them so popular that you could ship a load of cattle from Scotland to Argentina to America and they would survive just as well. So you're looking for a durable animal that also has the superior beef quality going on in there because at the end of the day, that's what they're there for is eating at the end of the day. So there's no point in producing an animal that you don't want to to eat. Oh, totally. I mean, obviously, the, the, the bigger Angus that, that um, grew in Scotland after after a time of going through, as you said, the belt buckle period to make a big Angus that could maybe compete with the Continentals and with uh, the Limousins and the Charolais as a crossing bull. But, you know, we've gone full circle with that now and, and, and people are looking for smaller animals. And the native Angus would be smaller, wouldn't it? But probably not a lot lighter, just shorter in the leg, maybe. No, it's um, it's a game we always like to play with visitors that actually guess the weight of the cow because, yes, although smaller in stature, because you're looking at such a thick, dense animal and a picture doesn't do justice to how deep and broad they are. You know, an average cow size for us is about 650 kilos. That's about, about what we would aim for. So they're not actually that, that small. They're dense, for lack of a better word. Sure, sure. And how many of those do you run there now, Louise? We've got about 45 um, cows going at the moment, but then you've always got like your followers on and your bulls and stuff like that. But yeah, usually run about 45. Okay, and we'll go on to, to your marketing, which has been exceptional, I have to say. Yeah, we'll go into that in a second, but let's just go through. I think it's you said, I think the date you gave me, it's probably roughly 30 years you've been, you've been, maybe a little bit more, you've been with these. Yes. And you said you have all 10 cow families there. Can, can you list a few of those particular prominent ones? Well, the cherry blossoms, the gypsies, the Joanna Ericas, the Ericas, um, obviously the gypsies are the best known worldwide because by and large, if anybody overseas knows a UK bred bull, they will know Don Louis Gypsy Earl because he has enjoyed phenomenal success all over the world. Three times the Pathfinder sire in America and there's never been another UK bull, a Pathfinder sire, never. We'll go on to maybe a little bit more about Gypsy Earl. As you said, he is famous, and uh, you're right, everybody's heard of him. But uh, particularly your market, it seems to be overseas. I know you'll have a UK market, but overseas and uh, yeah, all over the world, but uh, especially in the USA, isn't it? That's a big big hunting ground or, or a big target ground for you. Yes, it is. But it's South America, because of its extensive farming operations and um, we have customers in Uruguay who've bought from us on several occasions embryos and I said to the chap why you know you come back and keep buying embryos from us and he said oh well we can get these cattle to finish to our specification at two years old with a, a quality finish marbling and 12 mil of back fat. We cannot do that on grass with the other Angus. With the other the, Angus, yeah. And that, the other Angus is, is, I suppose, that we, we should look at a little bit. I mean, in Argentina, generally, would have preserved the Angus a little bit better than, the, or the original Angus a little bit better than the Americans did, who sort of bred everything in them to make them tall again. I'm talking to Tony Cato in a couple of weeks, and, and, and uh, you know, a big name in the Angus uh, over in, in, in Argentina and South America. But the, the, the Argentinians generally in the South America would have kept a little bit more shape and, 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 and finesse in their cattle rather than the big ones. Would I be right? 
Yeah, I would say that that's fair. That um, you know, you see a lot of um, you know South American cattle, Argentinian, Uruguayan, and I, I think that that is borne out from the fact that they have always had grass-fed beef as opposed to ever feeding them large amounts of grain. So it's the type of cattle that suit their system. So why you know when they struggle, especially places like Uruguay, they would have to start to import grain and things like that. So why would they change their type of cattle for a, a business model that doesn't suit them? So, okay, I get that, but I mean, I suppose it begs the question a little bit that don't they have any of those original strains of Angus left themselves rather than having to restock? Or, or are you working with uh, do they have native Angus down there and you're just adding to that? They, they have a, a very much native type Angus, most of them don't register many of their cattle, they're as pure as pure can be. And if you see 600 heifers in a lot. Andy, they're a sight to see. They're peas in a pod. They're, they're magnificent. The heads, the bodies, all of that. So they do have very, very traditional cattle, but they do what they call opening their bloodlines. They'll bring in something from likes of ourselves and they'll put it over a fair selection of their own cattle. Okay, okay, that sounds fair. And But we go on to the USA that I just mentioned, and one of our previous guests and a mutual acquaintance, Tom Burke, and, and uh, Tom, <laughs> Tom conducted a sale for you, I believe. He tells me he sold in every country, and, and he, I know he conducted it, or, or part of a sale for you as well. But, but Tom would be, be the first to admit that the general Angus in America isn't really pure at all, is it? <laughs> I get into trouble for saying these things, Andy. You can say that. I can't. But no, they, they would have a more openness as to um, what they refer to as behind-the-barn breeding. Okay, and behind-the-barn breeding would mean they would introduce other breeds into their own into the pedigree there and be allowed to do that? Or would they do that in a chivalrous way? Or would they, you know, would they, it was generally accepted that you could put a, a three-quarter animal and, and, and give it a, a pedigree, is that right? Well, they're, they're, they're what they call short pedigree cattle. Um, and they, to be fair, they did it for all the right reasons, in their book, because they had vast quantities of grain, which at that juncture, you know, you, there weren't biodigesters and power plants and that. All they could do was feed it to animals. So they made the Angus able to eat more grain, if you like. So the idea of that was to... By dint of doing those things, the law of unintended consequences, you get things that you really didn't bargain for, you know. Yes, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll carry on down this, this theme. I don't think we're upsetting too many people yet, anyway. And uh, I'm doing a bit of work with Tom and, and uh, Dr. Bob Hoke as well on some of the original imports of, um, of Angus into the USA and uh, going back you know, 100, 150 years or so when the Angus first arrived there. And can some of these still be traced back? Are there people that have preserved these over the years or has just about everybody forgotten the traditional Angus and, and gone with, it, with a new, new type? Certainly, there's nobody that's come forward to us and said in America that they they have um, they have natives that have not come from us kind of thing. That um, it, it doesn't seem to be that um, these either everybody converted or they went out of the game. But certainly, for you know, as long as I can think, nobody's ever come forward and said that they they think they have natives because again, slightly easier to prove if they've registered cattle. Yes. 
No, I, I think there are some. The white plantation in Maryland um, have kept traditional. There are other people that follow the philosophy, but not necessarily keeping them pure natives. Not not going to, into it with a passion that you've done yourself, and uh, and as I said, you have done a, a brilliant job in preserving these and picking up all these uh, all these families. And then the, in the UK, the native Angus has gained a status of its own, hasn't it? When when did that come about? Oh, yes, that came about about 2001. The, we, Ron McCarty was our, the late Ron McCarty, our CEO at the time, and I'd been lobbying to get something done to recognise them. So there was a meeting uh, in Perth with Ian Gill and a lady, Rosemary Mansbridge, from the RBST, and myself and Ron, and that was when we got this designation of Native Angus to certify the cattle that could go back to the very start with no imported bloodlines. Um, so that was 2000, that's fully 20 years ago since we did that. We now have a, a, a registered trademark of the Native Angus so that people that have invested in it have their interests protected, if you like. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you mentioned the RBST, for those that don't recognise the acronym there, that's the Rare Breed Survival Trust of the UK and a fantastic organisation that that is and has been in preserving all sorts of things. And yeah, with your help there, the, the RBST would have given you a lot of help back, I guess. So let's just talk a bit more about what they did. Well, they had semen banks um, and we had access to that in the early days to um, create as many genetic lines as we could. Um, so, yes, they gave us access to their semen bank, which they had had for a number of years. We, in turn, have contributed to their semen bank, which will be held in posterity and maybe 50 years time somebody will want to use it you know so um, yes in the early days we had access to semen from them which helped us broaden our genetic pool basically that's brilliant and it's brilliant that they had that and obviously semen ai hasn't been around forever so what sort of age or what sort of years could they go back to with stored semen uh, i'm going back the way um, well, for example, we've got um, some young bulls that are about 15 months old now from a 1963 bull. That would be wow. about the earliest that, that we would go back. But, you know, a lot of the time you're working with bulls that you know people talk about EPDs and studying those. A lot of the time you never have even had a photograph of these bulls because in the 60s, unless you won Perth, who was paying for a photograph of a bull kind of thing? Sure. So sure. the time and- it was just you know, it was a native, well, let's see what we can do kind of thing. Well, a lot of them would be native back then, but it's quite surprising, I think, to myself as much as anybody else that they did store semen or take semen that early. I always thought that AI didn't really come into the to the end of that decade. So why would they have specifically taken semen off an animal that maybe wasn't winning purse or, or wasn't being photographed? Was, was there particular breeders that were interested in doing that just to, to preserve the lines maybe? To a degree, some of it was done by the milk marketing boards. They would always draw semen off bulls for use in the dairy sector. So, you know, I've had it levied all well, but the bulls you got access to were not necessarily the best bulls of the day. 
and that may well be the case, but, but you have to play the hand you're dealt, use what's there and improve on it, hopefully improve on it, as the years have passed. And we've made our own young bulls and, um, you know, we, we like to think we're heading in the right direction, Andy. Sure, well, certainly you are, and you're heading, you've been heading in the right direction for a while when we start to look at some of the sales that you've done worldwide with, with what you've preserved there, and it's, a, it's a, a fantastic thing, and I suppose some of those later bulls then you would, when you start getting to the 70s or so, you would, there would still be some traditional ones about there that you would better, you know, take a bit more take a bit more use out of and let's just talk about the about the beef then it's always about the beef as, as you mentioned louise at the beginning then can you claim having better beef by having purer blood is that something that, that it, i'm not saying claim is that something that, that you uh, that you talk about um i would say that it's more the, the the type of cattle and what you're doing with them that um leads to better beef i mean you know we're constantly told you are what you you eat so um this, it's more a grass versus grain-fed beef. And if you can't finish uh, or feed a cow grass, then, you know, you're then having to shovel grain into it. Well, that's then changing the texture of the beef. That's t- changing the chemical composition of what's going on in there. So um, I would say that it's more breeding for a type rather than, um, uh, you know, it has to be native. Okay. 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 But you do supply native beef into premium outlets, do you? I assume, I assume restaurants. And I'm going to a nice restaurant today, and I'd like to think there might be someone there. You, you do. It's a premium product, is it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, as you sort of dad's talked about, when we're sort of gathering up ancient old cows and things like that, 25 years ago, our idea wasn't sort of making beef. It was trying to gather what was left and propagate it wise now we are at the stage where you know it's still a byproduct i would say that you know you're still trying to produce breeding cattle but pasture to plate is is a big movement which again wasn't the sort of thing that was talked about 25 years ago so um i would say that um there is more of an interest in it and yeah we've had had a lot of interest from um more premium outlets like we've got and um, the head chef and the flat iron in london coming up this spring to have a look at some of our steers and sort of hopefully get yeah. Well, he has had beef from us already, so I'm actually coming up to, to meet us. We've had a steer that was sent to Hong Kong tail end of last year. So, there, you know, it's um, getting the name out there so that people um, know to look for us and know that that's, that's really what it's about, because at the end of the day, we're all in the food chain. OK, I'm going to mention a dirty word to you probably is Wagyu, which has become a premium product um, in the UK, not particularly the most productive beef animal in the world, but uh, you know, it is a hugely sought after in, in restaurants there. And you guys come up against that. Can you tell them, well, this is a native bred animal that's from the UK rather than from across the world and it can live and survive on, on grass? Is, that, is, that a, is there a competition between you guys? Uh, I would say that it's it's a slightly different thing because you're right. It's it's a much slower maturing animal wagyu, and it does require an awful lot more input than our cattle need. So I think that you're looking at sort of two different kind of premium beefs there. That you know a wagyu steak is great, but it's not something that I would eat every Sunday kind of thing. And I think that again, it's something that when you're looking at productivity, that um, the, these guys would be much more productive because you're only looking at finishing them at two rather than four kind of things. So you're not looking at such a long turnaround time before you start making 
some of your money back. Yes, exactly. And ours is that's the other thing is it's then this grass versus grain fed debate then, isn't it? So it's you know two, two different competing things. And milk is probably the other thing we should mention in here. And again, I don't want to slur the wagus because I'll have the phone ringing hot, but uh, not the milkiest of beasts, I don't think. Whereas as uh, Angus, of course, is milky, and you'll have, you'll have pay particular attention to to good milking cows. Well, yeah, that's just it. The um, Again, as, as much as like a, a bull needs to be fertile and a steer needs to produce good beef, a mum's job is that she's got to be a good milker and she's got to be a good calf or she's got to sort of have a calf with good amount of vigour because who wants to be faffing with a 60 kilo calf trying to coax it to drink, you know, two or three times a day, the, the manpower that is um, required for that. And I think it's something that farmers don't give themselves um enough pounds per hour kind of thing the amount of time that you would spend faffing with things like that actually in the long run is that worth your time wise if you can breed a calf that has a lot more vigor to it you come out it's there it's already up and drinking all you do is you dip its navel in iodine and then you go about your day yeah absolutely because labor is a hugely expensive resource now and um yes easy care is the name of the game but easy care was something that you can that you can sell and and a high premium there sounds like you've got a bit of a win-win going on yeah, well, that's the hope anyway, isn't it? <laughs> Let's just look at the at the bulls then. You mentioned uh, Gypsy Earl. We'll have a bit more of a chat about him. And I believe Gypsy Earl would have sold more semen than any other bull in the breed. Would that be right? I, I, well, I would have thought by a country mile, but I really don't, you know, I, I don't know that for a fact. Okay. But, it, I mean, he sold vast quantities, if you like, Um he was by he was by a bull called Better of Class Locky, I think I'm right in saying, who was sold in 1979. Um, fortunate enough to get to get semen from him, I guess, and he was out of a damn rambler of Newcroft. So uh, there's some, some some very top animals round about that time. Where I think Better was a game changer of his time, but uh, around about that time, well sought after bulls. Well, Gypsy Earl's grandmother was also sired by Better of Class Locky. Um, that was one of his virtues. He pumped them out. The way he was was the way he made them. You know, if you put him to ten, nine out of ten, he would stamp with a real square frame, the, the broad head. You know, he really could type the cattle. And to us, that's more important than numbers is the consistency of breeding. And that consistency does come. We've again, we've studied a lot of the old breeders on on this uh, podcast, and the the line breeding that goes back the way is what uh, once that works, and that's what gives you the the stamp and the consistency, isn't he? And I guess that's where Earl gets his his qualities. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, to this day, uh, he still people uh, ask if we can export to certain parts of the world of him. I mean, he is still popular now. Because he takes so many boxes. Sure. And his family, I believe, originated at the spot, would that be right? Which is probably not too far up, up the road from you. And again, that's a, an early herd. Would that be right that Gypsy, uh, Gypsy family came from there? It, it came from the spot at the top of Glen Prosen. The White family, who, who were in it until maybe 10, 15 years ago from the 1800s. Uh, and that's where he came from. Um, Mr. Burke now has a head of a bull, Rover of Powery, which we <clears throat> acquired on his behalf from the White family uh, about 20 years ago. He spied it on a visit here 
and of course, it had to end up in the Hall of Fame in Missouri. Okay, of course, the Hall of Fame, a brilliant thing. So that's uh, if that's where it is, and that is a Hall of Fame, isn't it? When you're getting uh, when you're getting those old animals back in there. Um, and if we move on to another family, Erica. Erica's going to mention regularly on Top Lines and Tales whenever we talk about Angus, really. And I think your Erica line started with Ejetta uh, of Temple House. Would that be right? Yes, from Ayrshire. Um, that's where it came. Uh, the, the, the Eric has started at South Esk, mm-hmm. but it was Sir George McPherson Grant at Ballandalek that really put them on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it went back to Hugh Watson, mm-hmm. but uh, South Esk was where Sir George got his first one, and he... As I say, he was the guy that put the Ericas on the map. Of course, the Canada, Canada, South Esk, you're right. And uh, she she goes back to Emily 332, so right back in the beginning of the, the herd book. Yes, absolutely. And then you've bred, uh, you've bred her, I believe, to Evesand of Dublin, and again, a massively influential bull of his time. Some would say one of the best Angus bulls that people have ever seen, and certainly won his fair share. And uh, I assume, you did you get quite a bit of semen from him? Yes, we we still do. We still hold a fair stock of him. Uh, and we do. We have a son of his, uh, which was collected last year, and about the bull himself, a son of Eve Sunday Dublin, is gracing. Um, Spitlin she, that's what he's looking for. <laughs> yes. He's really up in the wilds, I can tell you. <laughs> Now, well, as I said, the Evesand has been a great breeder and a massively influential bull in the breed, as as, uh, as you said. And then the Cherry Bossoms, Kindless Brides, Miss Burgesses, they'll all be well-known, um, widespread families, but uh, some of them wouldn't be. How did, you know, the Families like the Ruth and the Lady Hatters, how, how would you track some of these down? It must have been a, ma- a massive effort. Well, it, it was a colossal effort to get the first Ruth we got, because it was owned by a very wealthy man, and the only way we could acquire that was he had to think he was really getting the better of us in a big way. So it was, and money was not, so I had to trade him a couple of young in-calf heifers to buy a 10-year-old cow, which he thought was a wonderful deal on his part. But of course, it gave us the first of our roots of Talifur. These are the kind of things we had to do, Andy, to get one old cow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, maybe your auctioneer training comes in there a little bit, Geordie, with a persuasive manner like that. But uh, no, a great job to find those. And, and there is, of course, a family of Ruths, uh, Richard Retty, I think, work, works with now. Is that a native family as well? Is that same? Does the Ruth still go back the same way? Or how far apart are they, really? I don't know is the answer to that, and no problem. We mentioned that you have your own organisation and your certification mark there, and how does that all fit together with the, with the Angus Society that we know? Yeah, well, the native, it's, it's all, the Aberdeen Angus Cattle Society, it's not a breakaway thing, it's just the, the native Angus was registered so that people that have invested in embryos have some degree of protection, because you can buy a straw of semen, uh, but to buy an embryo is a totally different thing. It's a, so to buy a semen and claim you have native cattle doesn't really work. You know, you can say they're sired by a native bull, whatever, but to have the real deal, you need the embryos or the cattle. Okay, that makes sense. And would there be... 
breeders in the UK that would be going back a little bit more towards the native the native animals and, and worldwide for that matter would we see bulls going back and in, crossing into into non-traditional herds just to gain those qualities back? Um, yeah, I would say we're definitely seeing, uh, particularly since our sale in 2017, we're seeing a rise in sort of bull sales within the UK. And actually, a lot of the time, it's commercial guys because they're needing something a bull that you know is nice and easy calving on their heifers. They've, you know, when we're talking about labour being an issue, you know, you're calving two or three hundred cows. By the time you know, if you have a ten percent problem, you're actually calving a lot of cattle at that point. So they're looking for something that is easier calving, easier working, and bringing down their their cow size. Because of course now you're being penalised at the other end for large carcass sizes. So they're wanting a more moderate framed animal that they don't have to shovel so much food at. Sounds like you've got the right product for them and. Uh... You mentioned your sale in 2017. Let's just look back at that. A phenomenally successful sale and, and a lot of that stock from the sale. How many was in that sale? And a lot of them went overseas, I think. 40-odd females were sold and four bulls and... Uh, About 10 lots of embryos. A selection of embryos. Yeah. They had live cattle that went to France. All the embryos went abroad. And um, we, quite surprisingly, that everything else stayed within the UK. We did have a few um, international buyers buy bulls that were then collected at Cogent. Okay, okay. And so you said some of those went to the UK. Would they be new breeders setting up to, to follow the line that, that you've started, to follow the, the native Angus? Are there, are there a, what sort of number of, of, of pure native um, herds do we see in the UK now? There are one or two Angus breeders who bought uh, one or two heifers, shall we say, at our sale, and in the intervening years have now gone very much more towards the native end of the market. So you'll be finding somewhere out there there might be bulls that you can buy back in, I guess, if there are some native ones out there. Is 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 that the quest? Well, there are, Andy. We we like to think we can breed them as good as the guy down the road. So we really don't buy in. Okay. We we use semen. We have a vast stock of semen, as Louise said, to go back to 1963. So we diversify by using some of the old semen. And you'll own that semen and not not be selling that. That's for sure. No, 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 no. We sell off the modern bulls that we collect, obviously, but not the old stuff. Okay. And let's talk about um, yourself, Jordy. You've not just promoted this from sitting at home there. You've travelled extensively uh, around the world, haven't you, talking about the attributes of the native Angus. I've, I heard a podcast somewhere, I think you were in Australia, for, uh, chatting to somebody. So you do, you do get around and, and, and go push the boat out there and go and see, go and see where the cattle are going and, and, and market them. Oh, yes. It's actually quite good to go and see just how they're performing. But as Louise said, it gives you some idea of what they're doing. The feedback is fairly immeasurable. Um, And we're we're heading off to the States, Louise and I, in May to see an established customer there. And we're currently making more embryos for him at the moment. And are you seeing some of these coming out into the show ring at all? Are they are they able no. able to compete, or they want to compete, or not? It's a bit like us trying to sell them and uh, show them at Sterling, Andy. It's not really uh, a runner. Okay. 
different type of animal. You know, it, but it, but it, I, I suppose as the numbers are growing there, there must be a collection of you that probably could have a have a combined sale at some stage. Oh, yes. Oh, that could well be. The problem is if we keep them on the farm, we keep control of their health status and all the rest of it. If we go to a show, you might bring home something you really didn't bargain on. Very true. Very true. I had that conversation with a Simmental breeder last week who said in Southern Ireland when the only way is to sell the animals from home because as soon as you take them to a market then, then uh, they're open to all the other, other diseases and things they can pick up and then they have to go through the quarantine. So I totally get that. And yourself, I mentioned at the top of the show that you've been rewarded for your preserving history and, uh, and you've had the uh, Geordie of the Queen's Award and an OBE. Congratulations. That's right. Yes. Um, we actually... <laughs> We're within a week of going to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen when Boris shut us down with COVID. So it was a year, uh, October, yep. uh, we went to Windsor Castle and it was Princess Anne that uh, did the deed, as it were. But it was a great occasion. I would have to say it was, um, yes, very nice. And Prince, Princess Anne, as, as, as Prince Charles as well, do take an interest in the earlier breeds, and Charles probably more so, I think, you know, preserving these early lines and these early breeds. So, I mean, that was great that you got to meet her. And what, what did she got to say about that? Was she, uh, was oh, she particularly oh, I, I met her before, actually. Uh, uh, Julia said to me, um, she had a lot to say to you. And I said, yes, what did she say? I said, well, she said, of oh course, not you again. <laughs> she she's, has a good grasp of the thing. Really, um, I think Charles may be more um, into his Angus, but no, no, she, she was quite sort of... Um, interested in, I, I, as you see, we, we had met her prior to that and uh, um, she, uh, yes, I'm hugely impressed with Princess Anne. She's very to the point and uh, Hard-working. Yes. Hard-working lady. Absolutely. I've met her a few times as well, and uh, she's not frightened to call a spade a spade. She's told me off a couple of times for various reasons I won't go into. Um, <laughs> but but her, her grandmother, of course, the, the, the Queen Mother, was president of the Society for a, a long, long time, although her cattle of later years probably went off on a tangent that uh, Charles wouldn't be happy about, I guess. Well, that's right. I mean, they followed the train. Everybody did, Andy. And you can, there's a lot of reasons why they did. If you were going to be in the commercial game, it, that's what you had to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And I'll go slightly sideways on this one now. Is there a scope for other breeds to do the same? I know the Line 1 Herefords uh, um, sort of have gone back to their particular routes and uh, they've ended up being at loggerheads with a lot of the pole guys because of that, I think, and, and you would have had that level of resistance too, I'm sure. But are there other breeds looking to do the same thing, get their original genes back? Well, I think you mentioned the Herefords, I think, without a shadow of a doubt, dear. I looked at uh, native Herefords 20-odd years ago as well and... I was very impressed with some of the cattle I saw. A lot of them less so, and you could almost see why they did the things they did, because a lot of them had very sloppy udders and things like that. But tremendous temperaments, and, and you know, the, the original Hereford has a lot to offer, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. 
certainly. And, and as I said, they did have a little bit of, and still are having a little bit of a dispute, I think, with uh, with the other type of Herefords, if you like. But I'd like to think that they're maybe they're all starting to pull together in the same direction eventually, and that the original ones are helping the new the new ones rather than rather than resisting with them. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's you know this being at war, it's counterproductive. There's no upside to it, you know. Um, so it's far better if everybody can be friends. As you said, you probably, well, as I mentioned, intimated to you, probably would have had some resistance within the within the breeders uh, in the UK for for going down a different route. But I mean, that's that's healthy as far as I'm concerned for the competition for them. Well, that's right. Oh yes, we certainly did. Um, <laughs> we we had a display of native cattle in Calgary in twenty. 2009, yeah. uh, which was um, kind of unique. We had half a dozen there, which had gone across to Wyoming as embryos, and then they were brought out in Montana. So we had a display of them in Calgary, and uh, they were very well received and um, uh, a lot of attention, but... Uh, I think our fellow countrymen were not so happy to see them there, you know. That's very diplomatic of you, Jody. And uh, I mentioned other breeds, of course. One of the breeds that's hot topic at the moment is the shorthorns, and everybody wants a shorthorn. They're going into numbers, but of course, a lot of those are come back from Canada with short pedigrees, as you, as you, you referred to. And uh, are we seeing interest in the shorthorns doing the same thing? And if not, why not? Well, I would like to see them doing it. I, I'm not sure how much of a genetic base they would have to start to do the same. Um, there has to be, I would assume, some pure shorthorns or whatever left. But, uh, yeah, I think it would be a good thing if they did. Mm-hmm. Whether they can physically do it now or not, I'm not sure, because I, I really don't know how many of the original population are left. No, that'd be very true, I suppose. And the short on halcyon days would probably be 20 years earlier than maybe the Angus days. So, yes, yeah, some of those better genetics would also start almost have started to drift away before the before the AI came in, let alone foot and mouth losing some of those families. But breeds like the South Devons and, and, the, and the Devons and what have you, a lot of these guys, I think the Devons claim to be pure anyway, don't they? But uh, they, they've sort of stuck, the, stuck with what they had for, for a long period of time. And the, and, the, and the Devons, again, Red Devons, fantastic breed of cattle. Oh, superb, superb. There, there is an original population of the Lincoln Reds. Mm, okay. And, and, I mean, they're sound cattle uh, well, as well. They're short on based, of course, aren't they? I'm not sure, the OP, how far back they go to be designated mm-hmm. as original population. Okay. Well, there is a differentiation and they have on their pedigrees, OP, okay. which I assume they're the ones that should not have infusions of other breeds. Okay. I can't remember whether Lincoln Reds, one of the breeds, allowed them to bring a little bit of limbs in. I'm not sure. I'll get shot for saying that if it isn't the Lincoln Reds. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the South Devons or one of them did allow them to bring a and, and controlled, which I think if, if we look back at some of these breeds, and I'm going to get controversial here, that when they did need to change, people sort of changed them, as I said, you know, behind the curtain rather than being open. And I remember Drew Adams saying to me from, from New House that uh, he sat on the council and said, well, we, to, to bring this Angus back up, we should look at some of the traditional Frisians, which were a good, were a good breed back yes. then before the Holstein came in. But it was never allowed to be done, and that's probably a shame, isn't it? 
Well, yes. I, I mean, they, they were the original British Frisian, real square-ended, decent, decent cattle. Um, but these things were done before the advent of DNA. So, um, behind the barn, as the Americans say. Yes. Yes, of course, the DNA came along to make, to keep everybody honest, and let's hope it's still doing that. Uh, uh, that's great. And I'll just go on to maybe something, another a bit more controversial, maybe it's not, not your point, but we're seeing a lot of sucklers disappearing off the hills now. We're putting them into into trees and what have you there. And, and, and is this, is the hill cow's days, the, the animal that can live up on a hill, are their days numbered, do you think? I think there will always be a demand for um, grass-fed beef. And I think that it's something that, the, like everything, it's always cyclical that they'll plant a load of trees and then realise that actually it's a, it's a waste of good ground kind of thing. And I think that they will, they'll, it will eventually reach an equilibrium and some of this ground that um, isn't useful for anything else that actually is exactly what natives are designed for, native Angus are designed for, is chucking them on a hillside and then you you know you gather them up a year later and you've got some calves there kind of thing. And then that that is should be what they're using the ground for. But if people are trying to persist in using continental breeds where they just don't belong, that's not what they were designed for, then you know, of course a farmer's gonna turn around and say, well actually per acre I can get more from the government for planting trees. No, I mean, I, I don't know the the suffer cow thing. Um, I think there's no doubt, as we've said, you're seeing the trend towards more efficient, sustainable cattle anyway, which are more conducive to the hillsides than, than other breeds, if you like. It's going in that direction anyway. The low input, as, as we say, a Ferrari will outperform a Focus but at what cost? Yes, at what cost? Indeed, indeed, and it comes down to cost, doesn't it? Rising costs all the time, as you said, labour costs and what have you. And uh, as I said earlier on, and it, uh, yeah, you sound like you're producing a product that uh, that the country wants at the moment, which is which is absolutely superb. We're talking about the hillsides. Just as an aside, we have some embryos. Uh, the family have come here twice, uh, going to Costa Rica, okay. um, and. Uh, one of their parts of their diet is going to be waste bananas. So I think that illustrates the, the versatility of the Angus breed from the wastes of northern Canada to we have them in the jungles of Colombia and working at 10,000 feet up in the Andes and now they're going to be going and eating bananas. So. I think it, it just really demonstrates the versatility. It certainly does. It's the first time I've ever heard of an animal on a, on a, any animal on a banana diet apart from a monkey. So that's a, that's great. And a nice place to follow up where your cattle have been. Yes, yes. Oh, is that your next holidays going, Louise? Is it? Well, as soon as we get some calves on the ground, I'm sure we can squeeze ten days in. <laughs> Well, brilliant, and and you mentioned you're off to to the USA shortly, so I wish you wish you luck with that. And and uh, have you got any more sales? Anything coming up sh um, shortly, or are you just uh, picking away with what you got up now? Well, we, we've quite a, we've embryos to make and deliver to various parts of the world, and that's going to keep us sort of on the treadmill for the next year anyway. Um, and probably visit some of these places at the same time. But other than that, no, there's no, we're not doing another sale okay. at, in, 
that just leads to more family fallout, Andy. So let's we're not putting that strain on ourselves. <laughs> heard that one the other day, and, and um, the chap got one heifer, and he said, we call it the divorce heifer, because if I dare sell that one, I'm going to get a divorce. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly the sentiment attached to that, exactly. <laughs> and, and we mentioned our friend Tom Burke, and I believe he's coming over to see you shortly. Oh, well, a lot will depend. We'll see him because we will go to the Hall of Fame in May as part of our trip, but we'll see him anyway. Um, and, uh, oh, yes, Mr. Burke, he's very entertaining and... Uh, uh, Once met, never forgotten. No, one of the, no, one of the most yeah. travelled men I've ever heard of. I think when he told me he'd done three hundred flights in a year, I thought, how on earth does anybody do that? Oh, oh I know. He, he just but he would want to do that. That's the other thing. Yes, why would you want he doubles white, and the minute a sales finished, a guy looks up and barks in his car and away down the road. He doesn't stay to have a post mortem on the sale or anything. He snaps his bag shut and he's off. <laughs> To the next destination. Brilliant man, yes. Catching a bit of his time is a hard bit. I think he knows a lot of people. And I've enjoyed catching your time, both of you. I know you're you're, you're busy. It's superb to talk to you. Um, And I wish you every success, or more success, should I say, with the Dun Louise Heard and and to to both of you, to the whole family there. It's just a commendable effort that you've done. And Geordie, I'm glad glad you've been rewarded for that. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Oh, that's excellent. It's very nice to speak to you. Cheers, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro. And uh, at this time of year when calving is fast approaching, it's highly recommended to move the cows onto the super succulent minerals at least six weeks before calving to get the cow and calf ready and to boost that most important colostrum quality. Look out Harbro on the internet or on social media or contact your local representative for more information. And whilst you're on social media, don't forget to look at the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll have where you'll find photographs to back up this and other episodes.